We all know our kids should study their Catholic faith and science. But how do we integrate these two vital subjects? Today's guest, Dr. Stacy Trasenkos, is uniquely equipped to help parents and students grasp the unity of faith and science. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, and today I'm talking with Dr. Stacy Trasenkos about the unity of faith and science. Dr. Trasenkos is a convert to Catholicism and an internationally recognized author, speaker, and educator on the topic of theology and science. She has a PhD in chemistry and an MA in dogmatic theology. She is a teaching fellow for Bishop Robert Barron's new Word on Fire Institute and regularly appears on Catholic Answers Live to answer questions about faith and science. She is the author of three books, Particles of Faith, which I am devouring and loving, by the way, that's Particles of Faith, and Science Was Born of Christianity, also 20 Answers, Bioethics. Her work was featured in Forbes magazine, and she has written numerous articles for publications such as National Catholic Register, St. Austin's Review, and Catholic World Report. She appears frequently on Catholic radio and podcasts. Dr. Tosenkos teaches online theology courses for Seton Hall University's Catholic Studies program. She and her family moved from the Adirondacks of upstate New York to East Texas last year, a coming home to her birthplace. Now she is the Executive Director for the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization, founded by Bishop Joseph Strickland in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. She is a mother of seven and wife to her dear husband, Jose. They enjoy their life together in Hideaway, Texas. Welcome to the program, Dr. Trisankos. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about faith and science. Oh, gosh, it's just so exciting and such a fun topic because, and it's something that we visit from different angles a lot on this podcast because we think it's so important. Why do you choose to spend so much energy and time and all your great, amazing talents and background teaching kids about the unity of faith and science? Well, I look at it as inoculating them against the dangers and errors of the secular culture that they're going to be growing up with. I mean, a lot of Catholic kids haven't yet heard that there's any kind of myth about a conflict between faith and science. Um, so I think it's important to get to them early and teach them to view all of the universe as God's creation and confidence so that when they um, have to dive into some of these tougher questions that are on the cutting edge of theology and science in our modern time, they're ready to handle it and to think critically and to remain confident in their faith. Right, exactly. If we don't equip them, they get blindsided by it. And, if, uh, and when those arguments sound awfully good without a foundation for pushing back and holding them up to the light, boy, we start to lose ground with our kids, don't we? Yes, and I, I know personally after I converted, I started getting bombarded with those questions. And the arguments from atheists, when they're practiced and they come at you with such confidence, it gives you pause. It makes you stop and wonder if your own faith is indeed reasonable. Um, and I know that you know a, young, a teenager or even a young adult is not ready to deal with that if, if it's the first time they've ever been 
confronted in that way. And, you know, I, we got to give them like a lot of times what I've seen is ha- happen with young adults is that when they're confronted, they go down this path of just trying to respond to the atheist, respond to the atheist on the atheist terms. And I'm trying to undercut all of that with the confidence that we simply pray the creed and mean it. And that's the starting point for understanding the unity between faith and science. So is that one of the basic lessons that you start with in educating kids around this topic? I teach them very young, uh, like with my own kids. I have a lot to practice on. But I just start out very young when we, when we learn about the creed or when you learn like the very first page in the St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism that prepares kids for First Communion. The very first page says God created everything. And I just teach them everything you look at is the handiwork of God. It's all creation. And whenever you do science, you're studying God's handiwork. And it's that simple. And that, but that simplicity that is so easy for a kid to understand is really something that's missing in very sophisticated, scholarly, adult conversations because I've seen Catholics lose sight of, oh yeah, it's all God's handiwork. We don't have to worry about science disproving that God exists because that doesn't make any sense. Right. And, and when they ask us, well, prove it, uh, gosh, it really throws us for a loop because we think that we have to prove the existence of God, that somehow the fact that they have science just trumps our faith. Exactly. And, and, and then it takes the focus off of us having a confidence in our faith because there's very sophisticated uh, philosophical and theological arguments for the existence of God, which are sound but they're not a matter of science, they're philosophy. And, and hopefully those kids will go on and learn what those things are and be able to defend them. But you've got to start from that confident place of faith. I mean, if we, if we can't talk and reason with both of our faith and our reason, if, and this happens in apologetics sometimes, people try to leave, apart, leave aside the faith part and just reason with atheists, how are we going to show them what it's like to do both at the same time, to, to do both sides of the coin, to use both wings, as St. John Paul II put it in Fides et Ratio? We have to show them what that looks like by reasoning in the light of faith. Can you give us an example of a basic um, technique or approach to one of the typical questions of an atheist? Like, how do you come back at them with that wholeness of a person using both faith and reason together? Well, one ex- so this is just a, um, a perspective example, not a specific scientific example, but I got it from my son when he was four. Um, he had grown up hearing me talk about atoms all the time because I was teaching chemistry. And he heard me say that everything's made of atoms. And he understood that. I mean, we had long discussions about my arms made of atoms. You know, yes, your arm is the wall, the air, this tree, these flowers, these birds. Yeah, everything's made of atoms. God created atoms. Everything's made of atoms. And he was getting ready to pray over his dinner one night, spaghetti and meatballs. And it was just the two of us because everybody else was gone. And I said, JJ, I want you to say the prayer by yourself so I can make sure you know the words. Mm-hmm. He did it, and he said, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. He said, bless us, O Lord, and these thy atoms, which we are about to receive by bounty through Christ our Lord. And I said, that's it. My four-year-old son just nailed the whole faith and science debates for all time. Because that's what I say then to atheists. I'm like, look, atheists, if you came to my house and we sat down to a meal 
I'm going to start out by looking at that meal like I look at the rest of the universe. Thank you, God, for this. And I'm going to say a prayer of thanks. And I'm going to see that whole meal as, you know, the bounty from from God. You atheists aren't going to do that. I get it. You're not going to look at the meal and say, thank you, God. You're not going to look at the universe and say, thank you, God. You're just going to study the order and tell yourself it comes from somewhere you know not where. But I, I need an answer for that. And I have an answer. My worldview informs me that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the creator of the world and that Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is rationality itself and that I expect to look at creation to be ordered. And so atheist, I hate to tell you, but when you look out at the world and you think you're going to do the scientific method and study the ordered creation, you actually have to have the worldview of a Catholic to be able to do science. But, you know, you don't have that last question about where it all came from. And I do. And we can talk about that if you want to. But I mean, that's just sort of how we look at it. But then I've argued with atheists and agnostics and, and, and I don't really argue with them. I just say, this is me. This is how I, this is my faith. And this is what my faith informs me of. And things like the big bang, or, you know, even if you get down into the, the subatomic particles and things coming into existence out of nothing and all of that, there's answers for all of that. But I tell them, I'm always coming from this position of faith. Um, and you define nothing differently than I define nothing. Um, or if they talk about the Big Bang, you know, I don't think the Big Bang necessarily proves our faith right. It just is consistent with our faith. Um, and, and with evolution, atheists are going to conclude that the human person is completely a matter of atoms and molecules and our, and our mind is emergent from our matter. I don't. We look at it as we have a rational soul. So I just always try to add the fuller truth. To whatever I'm, I'm like all about the science, totally, totally atheist. But then I add the fuller truth of the spiritual dimension of reality too. Right, and you know what it reminds me of when you're saying you look at the order this way, I look at the order that way. It reminds me of Saint Paul, um, talking about the unknown God and preaching to the pagans and converting them by meeting them where they were at. By look, here's the order. Here's your unknown God, and quoting their own pagan poetry back to them, in whom we live and move and have our being. I mean, so many of us quote that line as if it's a Christian thought, but it actually originated in some pure-hearted pagan soul in whom we live and move and have our being. It's just so beautiful that it makes such perfect sense. It's just a seismic shift to, instead of being defensive and having to meet them, as you said, on their terms, to say, here's who I am, and here's what I see, and here's my, here's how I interpret that through the lens of faith, so that they're actually getting to step into that lens of faith rather than just seeing us fighting. Yes, exactly. I mean, because nothing speaks louder than, hey, I'm happy, I'm comfortable, I'm confident, I'm not worried. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, I, think that, I think it says a lot about our faith when we can do that. And I love in your book, Particles of Faith, where you talk about that moment. You had this incredible shift where you understood the incredibly complex system that goes on inside the leaves and the trees with photosynthesis and the mechanics of it, the incredibly complex, interdependent, subtle things that can't be created in a lab. And suddenly you had this moment of, oh. It's beautifully made. I mean, I'm, I'm using my own words. I don't remember exactly how you put it, but that just gave me the holy shivers reading that, that God can meet you in that place of recognizing order and in, in innumerable uh, layers of order that are all interdependent and go, wow, somebody did that. <laughs> 
Exactly. And I like the way you're paraphrasing it because you're much more poetic than I've ever been. <laughs> oh my gosh, your book's amazing. I don't have, I'm not very <laughs> poetic myself, but, um, but yeah, it, you know, and the, the other reason I tell that story is because as compelling as that was, what did I do? I made the conscious decision to turn away, curse at the tree with pre-Catholic language. And, and I just turned away and I said, I don't care if I just glimpsed God. I'm not worried about that right now. I choose not to care. I choose not to acknowledge it. I just want to graduate. And I, I think a lot of people do that. I think that's one reason, again, why we need to be confident and smiling and happy about our faith, because I think a lot of atheists do glimpse God and they do see the end of their logical path and they just don't want to go there because the, the, it wasn't the intellectual part that scared me so much. It was if God knows how many hairs are on my head, then he knows how many carotene molecules there are and how many atoms and electrons are in all of those. And he knows everything I'm thinking or ever thought or ever did. It was hard for me to face up to my sins um, and change my life. I had to change everything about my worldview. And I think that's what keeps people being atheist. Because it's kind of hard to escape, the, if, especially if you're a scientist, it's hard to escape that there's this crazy uh, inhuman order in the world. Um, I think atheists love science because they're searching for truth, and that's as close to God as they're willing to get. And I think they just don't go that, that next step in granting assent to the truths of faith. And, and I love that you started off by saying that science is to look at God's creation, is to look at how God made things. And so the more we dig below the surface, the more we get glimpses of almost, to, in my words, the, sort of the mind of God. You're starting to get glimpses of his creativity and sometimes his whimsy and his incredible sense of order. I mean, just the fact that everything's made of atoms Gosh, that, that, there's something that interconnects us all, and I don't mean that in the, some kind of weird New Agey sense, but that, but that, there, that there's something building blocks that God created, and then look at what he makes. Yeah, and it just all hangs together. And, you know, if we, sci scientists don't know this, but if we knew every chemical reaction that had to happen right now for our hearts to beat one more time, like it, it would, it is mind blowing. And like we, the best science in the world doesn't, isn't able to capture all of that that happens in that moment, just for us to be alive and a heart to beat. There's all kinds of things that have to happen in orchestration. But it's, it's just, it's, it really does open your mind up to just how magnificent God is when you start to dive into science. And let me tell you, that is a good reason to look at chemistry students who are hating chemistry and say, this is why you have to learn it, you know, because the secular institutions, public schools don't have that. They are like, you have to learn chemistry because you've got to graduate. But when you can say to a kid that you're actually getting to know God better so you can love him more and serve him more by doing chemistry and physics, <laughs> then you give them a really deep reason to care about it, even if they don't become chemists, which mm. breaks my heart. But <laughs> Oh man, do I wish I had the brains to be a chemist. <laughs> um, what, you, you mentioned the line, truth cannot contradict truth. What does that mean in the context of our discussion? It's a very old line in the Catholic Church um, that was in, I think, Providentiamus Deus. Um, and, it, and it just means that we don't have to worry that truth is not ever going to contradict truth. And it means the theological truths, the di divine revelation, what God told us that 
you know, the things that human reason wouldn't have discovered, like the, the triune God and the incarnation, those things can never contradict what we also discover in the natural world. They, they, whatever we discover in science is never going to contradict the fact. That's like saying that mom doesn't exist because of the lasagna sitting on the table. No, she created it. And you're not going to take something she created and look at it and try to figure out whether mom exists or not. That's absurd. Like it doesn't even go together. (laughs) And it's the same way with God, you know? And so that, you know, that's what that means that truth can't contradict truth. And there's so many times that we just need to remember that. And it is a faith first approach to science and confidence. But what it also means is, when we seem to have scientific conclusions out there in the popular media or whatever that seem to contradict our faith, it's really what it means is that we're human and we don't know everything. It means that scientific theories are just where they are in this moment in time and they could change tomorrow. And it's really a commentary on our humility. And so when people think that science can prove or disprove God, it's also, you know, coming from the atheists who say that th- there's a lack of humility there or an over trust on or an over reliance on science and not understanding that science is just the physical world. Yeah, and there's so many scientists out there who actually are people of faith and there have been a, quite a number of conversions in recent years among the scientific community where the just the sheer implausibility of any of this being random has suddenly just shaken somebody to their core and they've become deists. Maybe not religious, but they do have that sense of their being. And is it the right word to use the, the term intelligent design? Is that, is that where we want to be thinking? Well, I say, so I, I've talked to Dr. Michael Behe before, the father of the intelligent design move, movement, and he knows where I stand on this. And, you know, he, we say we're this close to agreeing, but I don't completely agree <laughs> with him. Because I don't think he goes big enough um, that, you know, I don't, I think it's a dangerous thing to pick through the universe and look for where is their intelligent design evident, you know, like, first of all, for us to say, I define this as intelligent design, it's kind of like we're saying to God, I'm going to tell you what's intelligent and what's not. And then we go out, (laughs) find things that meet our definition of intelligence and say, aha, there's intelligent design, therefore Uh God exists. I'd rather go back and just say, like my four-year-old did, it's all intelligently designed. Um, and when we find things that are really, really intelligent, intelligently designed, we just go, wow, God, that's great. But, you know, a rotting tree stump, I'm a chemist. If you give me enough time, I can show you that even a rotting tree stump is not random at all. It's very much intelligently designed down at the atomic level. It doesn't look intelligent to us maybe or if you throw a bunch of marbles and they land somewhere there's laws of nature guiding every single motion of every particle and the more we learn those laws the more we can delve deeper the more we can explore let our imaginations run wild wild i'm so fascinated by how many science fiction writers have allowed themselves just on the basis of what they knew in their times to let their imaginations run wild and some of them were prophetic yeah yeah, it, 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 yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, we want to live in that place of awe and wonder, don't we? Because trying to reduce it down to, as you said, our definition of intelligence is, is yeah, like you said, it's, it's trying to reduce 
what we're seeing and, and not being maybe open. It's not that we're trying to say there's times when God isn't intelligent. We're just trying to squeeze it into our definition, I think. It's, at least that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, I just, I just don't like to use intelligent design about this or that or the other. I just say, hey, it's all. I mean, the periodic table is intelligently designed and everything's made of atoms. So, so all of it. <laughs> so does that make us creationists? What are, yeah. what are we then? Are we creationists? Well, we're creationists in the sense, again, like my son said, that God created everything. Um, but we also, like that, that's where this view, this childlike view of awe and wonder really saves us from some confusion with creationism, like the young earth, six day literal creationism. Because the, the, what's underneath all of that is this idea that we have to disprove evolution in order to defend our faith. And you don't have to disprove evolution. You just have to understand evolution for what it is. Evolutionary theory, the way we understand it today, which is not complete. I mean, it's not just genetic mutation and natural selection. There are scientists who are studying stochastic contributions and cooperation between large systems of, of things and entropy. I mean, we're just not done explaining it all. But Whatever happened, we're still studying how God brought about the diversity of life on earth. And so, again, it's that humility. We just need to look at it and say, okay, I'm going to try to figure this out. I mean, if a scientist finds a fossil and classifies it as one of the earliest human bones ever to be found, fine. See what we can learn about it. You know, there's no, there doesn't need to be any contradiction we can still believe that Adam and Eve literally existed because science would never be able to disprove that God didn't work a miracle. So we can, you know, we, we're, we're safe in both views of things that Adam and Eve did exist and that evolution is a good theory. Yeah, I think what one of the many things that can muddy the waters for us is the, all the scams that we've had over the years about missing links and things like that, trying to prove a direct line, lineage between early primates and present-day human beings. And, um, and that's where we really get our hackles up because it changes the picture, doesn't it, for us as having been created from the beginning in the image and likeness of God. Yeah, and and I've um, looked at some of the like there you'll see sci you'll see things in the scientific literature that say first human discovered, but when you read what they're saying, that that's not even what they're saying. Like I don't know why they put a title on it like that because when you I, t I actually teach a course at Holy Apostles College and Seminary uh, to teach people how to read the scientific papers because if you see some claim in popular media, if you go find the actual paper. You, you do at that point get to the humility there because a lot of times it's it's been overblown in the media and scientists will be, say things like we suggest, we think, the data points in this direction. Um, a lot a lot more hesitant to say, you know, just interpreting the data and saying what might be there. And so it, there was one time where the popular media headline said first human found. But when you look at it, it was just they dated the fossil to the earliest ever, um, but they don't know that they might find another earlier one sooner, you know, in another day. So there's really no, it wasn't really saying that. Yeah, they're always going for the sensational attention-grabbing headline. Okay, so is the church against science? What about our kids who love science and everybody's telling them that the church and science are incompatible? <laughs> This, so my first book was called Science Was Born of Christianity. And 
I, I, I just, and I can defend it. So I put that title there because it's based on the work of Father Stanley Yockey, who was a PhD physicist and a PhD theologian and a priest. Um, and he did research into the history of, of the birth of science, where modern science came from, because it's, it's fairly new on the scene of human history. And he shows that modern science, for if you look at the scientific revolution in the 16 and 1700s, it was building on centuries of work before that in the Catholic universities in the Christian West and Europe. And the reason that scholars, and they were Christian scholars, started or started putting mathematics to describe the motion of matter was because they were looking at the universe as God's creation and expected it to be ordered. Um, and there had been some of that, you know, people say, then why, why did it take so long? Christ was born thousand years before that. Right. But there were other things going on. And, and what the, what the middle age, the medieval scholars in the middle ages actually did was like you were saying, they were taking the Greek scientific corpus that was passed on to them through the Muslim world, and they were purifying it. They were Christianizing it. They were accepting everything they could. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas does, accepting everything he could that was true. But specifically when it got to the world being eternally cycling, an eternally cycling cosmos, or the world being a God itself, that God is imminent in nature, within nature, nature worship pantheism, all the Christian scholars, even back to the early church fathers up to now, and especially with St. Thomas Aquinas, rejected that conclusion. They said, nope, that contradicts the Christian creed. And so we're not going to accept it. So the divine revelation that there is a beginning in time and that God created everything out of nothing was drastically different from any other worldview. So to kids today, I say, be, you know, be really confident when you pray the creed and mean it. And if you've got like a whole semester, you can take this course on the theology of science. And I'll explain to you the history of science and why, but be confident in your faith. And then the really cool thing is with high school students, when I told them, a studying chemistry is in physics is getting to know God better because you're studying his handiwork to become a scientist you have to discover something new. To get your PhD, you have to break into something new. You have to make a new discovery, even if it's very small. What you're doing then is you're peering into God's creation in a way nobody else has for the very first time. And so those kids want to be scientists then. <laughs> they get excited and they understand why we're doing science. They want to go out there and be a scientist. And I tell them the third thing is, You've been raised to practice virtue. You understand that the human person is body and soul and that you have intellect and free will and you're supposed to pursue virtue all your life. It's not just that you need to wonder if you need to set your faith aside at the door when you enter the laboratory. No, you need to be a scientist and a Catholic and you need to let your faith guide everything you do because scientific, the scientific community today is very much in need of guidance. There's a lot of scientific research going on, bioethics. People do things because they can. They don't ask whether they should. And the scientific community is badly in need of leaders. And I think they need to be Catholic leaders, people who understand all of that full reality, who can get out there and lead the way. So I try to get people to get way past the defensive apologetics and actually get out in front and say, hey, y'all, I know where science needs to go to progress humanity the right way. Follow me.
Mm, I love that. Army of Catholic scientists. Yeah, because without that attitude, right, we fall under the sway of charming and persuasive college professors who start to chip away and like find their subtle ways of mocking religious belief and come on now we're intelligent here uh this is what this is what's real what's scientific is real this is real knowledge not some sort of superstition so what do we do when our kids come home from college going you know there's no god it's um, be ready to talk to them. You know, that's why I, I wrote the books and published them. They're as much for young people as they are for parents to, to be able to, to refer to and just get And I'm really big on getting the fundamentals correct because then all the other stuff builds on that. Um, but I've had students who, so I used to teach for Colby Academy, the homeschool program. And I have had students who not only did they decide to go into secular institutions because they had better science programs and they wanted to pursue science, they came back to me and told me about how they did challenge their professors. And I mean, one, one young woman not only challenged her professor, she ended up impressing him and he ended up giving her special um, consideration for research projects later on. I mean, she did very well because of that. And she could think and she could do science. So I, you know, I've seen it work. I've, I've seen just that very easy adjustment in the worldview actually play out over time and, and, and help build that confidence. I've seen it work. Okay. So in kind of wrapping up, any final thoughts or resources you'd like to recommend? Well, I have, um, I would, I'll recommend my book. <laughs> no, absolutely. And we'll have links to your books on the show pages. Of I, I, um, I just, so the, Particles of Faith just came out as a student edition. So it doesn't have my story in it. It just has the science and theology stuff. But it has questions and um, PowerPoints and videos and quizzes and all that stuff to go with it. So it should be easy for a homeschooling parent to use or a school to use. Um, But I also recommend the work of Father Stanley Yockey. It's J-A-K-I, but it's pronounced Yockey. Um, He was Hungarian. He passed away in 2009, um, but I, I really, that I tried on purpose to bring his work to a new generation. His work is very dense. It's very hard to read and get through. Um, and so I wrote my little book, Science Was Born of Christianity, just to convey the basic argument. Um, but the real full, I mean, it's, it's like me giving a tour of a museum. The real thing is his, his other books, his two big volumes um, that he had early, which one was called Just Science and Creation, and another one was called The Revelance of Physics. Those are his two monumental works, and then he has smaller works after that, like 50 or so. But I, I highly recommend him. I, w- I would like to see hit the contributions he made to this discussion um, c- continue to move forward. That's exciting. That's really exciting. Well, um, Dr. Chesankos, it's just been so much fun. Um, just having just to be able to come into with somebody like you with all of your degrees and your experience as a research scientist and your own breakthroughs scientifically and the long road with your conversion and all of that to come and hear from you just how really simple it is to integrate faith and science. What a natural thing it is just as we are both body and soul to bring the natural and the supernatural together as one. Yes. I love our faith. (laughs) So beautiful. So liberating. All right, everybody, you can find Dr. Trisankos at stacytrisankos.com. That's 
S-T-A-C-Y, no E in there. Trasankos is T-R-A-S-A-N-C-O-S dot com, and it's the show page. So don't worry about jotting that down right now. You can also find her at the St. Philip Institute, and that's www.stphilip1linstitute.org. And again, thanks so much, Dr. Trasankos. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's lovely. All right, and everybody, please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm AJ Catapan. Welcome to Books and Blessings, a place where I get to share with you some of my favorite books for Catholic teens and tweens. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Frozen Footprints, a YA thriller by Catholic author Therese Heckenkamp. This is an exciting suspense novel, perfect for reading on a dark winter's night. Frozen Footprints tells the story of 18-year-old Charlene. She and her twin brother Maxwell live a rather luxurious life as far as material goods are concerned. However, their grandfather, a wealthy oil baron, is extremely controlling and cares more about his money than he does about his own grandkids. When Max goes missing, Charlene believes immediately that something is wrong. Her twin instincts tell her Max is in danger. Unfortunately, her grandfather disagrees with her, even after a ransom note is delivered to the house. The grandfather believes the ransom note is just a hoax, put on by Max himself. He believes Max is just trying to get yet more money out of his grandfather. While Max might act like a spoiled wealthy teen at times, Charlene is still convinced that something is wrong. When her cell phone reveals that she has missed many calls from Max, she tries to call him back but the raspy voice that answers is not that of her brother. Charlene follows the clues to try to get her brother back, but it puts both her and her brother's lives in jeopardy. Without giving away too much of the plot, let's just say that Charlene and Max end up under the thumb of a truly evil character with malicious intent. And Charlene turns to the rosary to help her find a way out of this desperate situation. The tension and suspense in the story will keep the pages turning, but be forewarned that this story can get rather intense and is probably best suited for older teens. If you have a teen who is aching to read Stephen King, but you want them to read something that offers more of a Catholic worldview, this book would be a perfect fit. Frozen Footprints by Therese Heckenkamp has been a bestseller in Christian YA suspense. It has also received the Catholic Writers Guild seal of approval and was a 2013 finalist for the Catholic Arts and Letters Award for Children and Teen Fiction. To see more book suggestions, visit my website at ajcatapan.com. There, you can also learn about my own books for young readers, including my YA novel, Angelhood, another story perfect for the Christmas season, as it has been called the teen version of It's a Wonderful Life, and tells the story of a teenage guardian angel trying to earn her wings by stopping another soul from taking her own life. Thanks for joining me on Books and Blessings. Be sure to find me online on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or on my website, ajcatapan.com. Until next time, happy reading. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you, and thank you for joining us.